Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. We've got the 100th episode coming up here pretty quick, so I think that what we're going to do is we're going to have another Q&A session. So if you have any questions you want to ask me, please send them my way. I'm also going to be looking into finding a way for you to send me voice files. So if you'd like to hear your voice on the show, that might be a way to go about it. But anyways, if you have any questions, you can submit them on Facebook, you can submit them via Twitter, or you can always email me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Okay, when we last left off, we were talking about a new class of elites in sub-Roman Britain, a group of individuals we identify now as Anglo-Saxons and kings. We also mentioned the class of nobles that was growing up around them, and we talked about how that change, the increase in social stratification, might have come about. Well, this week, we're going to talk about the impact that the stratification would have had on the culture that was growing in Eastern Britain. And as a way of opening up this discussion, I thought we could talk about what we've been speaking about on Facebook. I posed to the community a question that I was certain would result in a pretty large debate. Essentially, the question was this. Do the wealthy members of our society have a disproportionately large impact on our culture relative to their numbers? To my surprise, there really wasn't much of a debate. A lot of people responded, but the vast majority of them seemed to agree that, yes, the wealthy have a disproportionate impact. Now, naturally, I agreed, but I'm a dirty Portland hippie, so of course I think the cultural influence of the wealthy is supersized. What surprised me, though, was the level of broad agreement from people from all over the place. Though I think that might be because we have been living with that sort of influence for centuries. So now that we have a general agreement through my non-scientific sampling on Facebook... Let's talk about how the wealthy elite possibly led to the creation of regional ethnic groups. You know, the ones that Bede identified as the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes. Because when we're talking about a cultural influence, that's really the name of the game for this period in history. Well, right at the end of last week's episode, I mentioned the cultural influence that the Franks had upon Kent. I also alluded to the cultural influence of Norway upon Northumbria. And for a long time, this was assumed to be the result of invasion. The reason for that is that we're still dealing with a hangover from the Victorian era on history. And honestly, we're only now just starting to shake it off. And I could talk forever about this subject, but in short, a lot of the assumptions that we have about invasion flow from their perspective, which was, understandably, rather focused on imperial aggression. After all, people tend to assume that everyone thinks like them, right? Well, the Victorians were still part of that imperial strategy, and so foreign invasion was no stranger to them. Therefore, they really had a predictable answer to the question of why would a native population suddenly start doing something different? Well, foreign invasion, obviously. Just look around you, that's what happens everywhere. It's just common sense. Now, these days, there's a lot more emphasis on trade, cultural contact, and travel. And as we revisit these questions and cultures in our modern time, we're finding evidence that we've underestimated trade, cultural contact, and travel for quite a while. However, it should be noted that we do have our own biases with regard to that. After all, we live in a world where you can find Levi's all over the place. Not because of war, but because of, you guessed it, trade, cultural contact, and travel. So it's probably a good idea to take a view of moderation on most of this stuff. At least, that's what I try and do. Anyway, so Northumbria has evidence, through objects found in graves and the like, that Norway had a cultural influence upon it, and Kent was starting to look downright Frankish in some regards. Well, at least if you're just looking at the graves of the wealthy. And when you think about it, it makes sense. 
even in our modern times, we're eager to emulate those that we admire, or in some cases, envy. And the cultures of the Franks and the Norwegians would have been quite impressive to the population of Britain. Both the local Brits and the Germanic settlers would have been quite poor in comparison to them. The Brits had just dealt with the collapse of their economy, barbarian raids, the shattering of any sort of unity of their province, and an influx of new cultural groups. They had fallen rather far from the cushy days of Constantine, and they were probably feeling it rather keenly. And to make matters worse, they could see all around them signs of their past glories, now long faded. Meanwhile, the Germanic settlers were uprooted from their homes, still trying to get on their feet, sometimes found themselves in conflict with the native Brits or fellow barbarians, and seemed to have been operating in small groups rather than any sort of large kingdom. And all of that is reflected in the relative poverty that we've seen in early Germanic settlements. So what I'm getting at here is that both groups of people were in a bit of a rough patch. Now given that, Imagine how they would have seen the stable, not to mention large, kingdoms in Norway and Francia. I mean, you had Britain, which had turned into an island of small places, and they were coming into direct contact with something that was reminiscent of the old days, when the world was still dominated by large nations and large goals. And to sweeten the pot, the kingdoms didn't just look like the old days, they also had some of the trappings of that old way of life too. For example, the Franks were still able to use some of the old Roman industrial sites. And to be honest, the Franks probably seemed quite a bit Roman to the Brits. So it's not hard to imagine how there'd be a bit of envy going on there. So to break it down to painfully simplistic terms, the foreign nations that we're talking about here were cool. And who doesn't want to emulate cool people? They're also wealthy in comparison with the Brits. And that adds its own level of cool on top of it. So if you were upper class and you wanted to show it, what better way than to emulate the styles of your impossibly rich neighboring nations? So right there, we're starting to see the impact of wealth on culture in Britain. And in this case, it was foreign wealth. And we're also starting to see how the cultures of the North and South could diverge from one another. After all, they are under the influence of different nations. But that divergence wasn't all foreign influence there was also internal pressure driving this sense of regional cultural development. Now, I should point out that my use of the phrase regional cultural development is deliberate. We aren't yet seeing a development of a regional identity. That will come later. You might see groups over a large area starting to behave similarly. But that doesn't mean that they saw themselves as a common group. You might say, well, we're the Maganseta, and they're the Tomseta, and we're completely different groups. But from our historical perspective, those two groups might still look very similar because there's a regional cultural development that's starting. Does that make sense? So in these early days, we still have an absurdly large number of individual communities rather than the comparatively easy differentiation of the seven kingdoms of the Heptarchy. For example, there's no Northumbria at this point. So I just wanted to make sure you have a clear image of the fractured state of Eastern Britain at this point in history. Anyway, so we're talking about cultural development and the wealthy. So we have prosperous families wanting to set themselves apart from their neighbors. And in the case of the North and the South, they were using distinct foreign fashions. But keep in mind, this was probably just a small part of what was going on. There are all sorts of ways that the ruling classes could signal to the rest of us that they're a breed apart. Not just clothing and jewelry, but diction accent, behavior, posture, mannerisms, activity, diet, the list is really endless. But we just have a small window, which we discussed last week. 
So for the most part, we're just looking at grave goods and the like. But even with that small sampling, we're seeing the shaping of society. On occasion, we see these grand feasting halls and extravagant, for their time, resonances. Not to mention incredible burial goods. And these are the big press finds, the ones that are covered by the BBC and international media. And these are also the domain of the class of people that we typically read about in what little records we can find. And are what we've been talking about in this show, for that matter. They're the domain of the people who are on the level of figures like Ida and Chalin and Allah. And that group of people have influenced culture dramatically, as we're discussing. But we shouldn't lose track of the main story here, which is that of the island as a whole. Those families were a very small percentage of the population, and they didn't reflect how the rest of the population lived. So as we talk about this, remember the other part of the story. The fact that in order for these rulers to live so extravagantly, they needed a network of impoverished farming communities supporting that sort of lifestyle. This support was gathered from both poorer hamlets as well as from within the wealthy communities themselves. In the latter example, we sometimes find smaller buildings that would have belonged to the lower classes located near the grand halls in some of the more extravagant towns. And much of this echoes the ancient Roman past, though the proximity really doesn't. The Romans weren't that big on mixing with the lower classes. But in general, the Romans too organized their communities to support the ruling class. Of course, the Roman economy was a moneyed one, and here we see a total abandonment of coinage. So you might be asking yourself, how does the community support the ruling class in the sub-Roman period? Well, remember how we talked about the importance of food and the dominance of food rent in earlier episodes? Well, here we see why that's important. The smaller communities would have been contributing food and labor up the chain to support the more affluent families, enabling them to live large. And without that network of support, those ruling families would have collapsed. So there we see another way that everyone was getting tied to the wealthy families, even if they didn't realize the full implications of their position at the time. The wealthy needed the farmers, and were probably wise enough to know that. And of course, force was one way to ensure their support. So was history of power for that matter. Cuthbert's family has always been in charge. And so why are we going to change things now? Let's just send his family that food rent. It's just the way it is. Something along those lines. And if you were from a good lineage, you could also point to that to support your right to have a bigger share than everyone else. Hey, I'm descended from Woden. Who are you descended from? Wilfred? You know, something like that. But there's another way that they can ensure their standing. Because not everyone was lucky enough to be the Allfather's great-great-great-grandson. And this was to signal to everyone around them that they were special, and to create a sort of mystique about them. And one way to do that was with fashion. So as an example of this, you start to see women wearing clothing that, for lack of a better term, was jangly. Today you might want to signal your wealth and status by having a specific designer make your clothing and accessories. Or maybe you would drive a specific type of car. But for the communities in Eastern Britain at this time, it seems like the wealthy ladies chose to rely on elaborate rings, bars, and keys hanging from their belts, presumably so all around them could both see and hear how rich their families were. And it probably also signaled the wealth and status of the men who favored them. Don't forget that this is a gift-giving society, 
So to prominently display the gifts you've received on a jangly belt might be a good way to start showing off how you fit into the hierarchy, and also where your family fits into that structure. After all, this is after we're seeing symbols of power concentrating around men, so chances are these ladies' status was closely tied to the men they were associated with. And the thing is that these status symbols weren't isolated or unique. You start to see similar symbols popping up in rather distant communities. And you also see common funerary practices and other social practices appearing. So this isn't just one or two villages, but we're seeing this stuff in constellations of villages. And frankly, simultaneous and independent development is just a bit too far-fetched for an explanation of this sudden shift. The only reasonable conclusion, in my opinion, is that the people of these communities must have been coming into contact with each other, and, as a result, were influencing each other. Now, why would they be coming into contact? Well, if you push aside the possibility of invasion, the first thing that jumps to mind, for me at least, is marriage. We chatted about this last week, but basically, unless you were prepared to get creepy, not to mention have some rather unfortunate children, you'd need to start marrying outside your tiny little village. This has a rather fascinating effect, because the brides ended up becoming cultural ambassadors of a sort. Of course, this wasn't the goal. The goal would be to garner better power for their families, develop alliances, and that sort of thing. But when a lady from a far-off village married your son, she would bring a variety of alien cultural peculiarities with her. And of course, your daughter would be bringing a bunch of your cultural behaviors with her to whatever village you married her off to. So you had some level of parity there. Now, alliances and family unions would be more valuable if they are in your general area, rather than if they are far off. After all, if one of your neighbors decided to get a bit rowdy, what good would an ally 200 miles away do for you? You'd probably want one located in the same valley, if at all possible, or at least in the vague vicinity. Needless to say, this would mostly apply to wealthy members of villages. Some random poor farmer really didn't need to form family alliances, as they wouldn't really do much good, and anyone worth allying with would be looking for better prospects anyways. Anyway, so over time these marriages would start to bring about a homogenization of culture among the wealthy members of villages, who are relatively close to each other. Now, gift-giving would have also been influencing the culture of the area. As we spoke about in the earlier episodes, Anglo-Saxon culture was a gift-giving culture. And in the 6th century, we're starting to get to a point where some members of the community had enough wealth to be able to start engaging in serious gift-giving. So a noble in Mill Hill might be wearing items that were given as gifts from nobles in Finglesham and Canterbury. And in those communities, they might be sporting gifts from Mill Hill as well. But again, this really only affects members of society who are wealthy enough to give gifts. You might remember from earlier episodes that if you were lower on the hierarchy, giving material goods wasn't really expected, but rather you were expected to give loyal service and labor to your liege. And if you receive gifts, it would probably come from your own liege. It's highly unlikely that it would come from a leader from a faraway village. So chances are this cultural exchange was just happening at the upper levels of society. Now, another way that culture could have been homogenizing is through itinerant craftsmen. At this point, you had craftsmen wandering through the land, and like you might expect, those craftsmen probably had some signature items and a particular style. Well, as they traveled and received commissions, they would be spreading that style in all the regions that they traveled to. So suddenly, people in one village would be sporting weapons or brooches or something along those lines that were remarkably similar to four or five other villages because they all came from the same craftsmen. Also, you might have peddlers spreading culture among those wealthy enough to purchase items. 
For example, at a grand feast, you might have noticed that Osrid had a rather impressive hilt. Or maybe you noticed that Aethelfleda had an incredibly ornate brooch. Well, you might try and get your hands on something like that through a peddler, either to acquire it for yourself or to present it to someone else as a gift. Either way, you're going to start seeing different material culture coming into your community through those peddlers. But like I mentioned earlier, a lot of the cultural shifts are probably things that we don't see. They'd be in accents, dialects, behavior, songs, religion, myths, rituals, and a thousand other things we just can't see or only see vague shadows of. But with all this intermingling at feasts, intermarriage, travel, and the like, you're starting to see those cultural aspects being adopted and changed. It makes sense. To a certain extent, you are who you spend your time with, right? Well, these upper-class members of Anglo-Saxon society were spending time with individuals from a variety of different villages, thanks to marriages, feasts, alliances, and that sort of stuff. And while they all might have initially had differing behaviors, thanks to different backgrounds, different arrangements with the local population, or just a general cultural shift, the increased contact would have led to a softening of those differences. Think about it in the context of our modern society. Most of you probably know at least one person from another region, maybe from another country, or maybe just from another part of the country. Over the years, they've picked up different slang, and their accent has softened, hasn't it? And conversely, you might have picked up some of their accent, or at least learned what it means. For example, despite my accent, I grew up in a British household with British slang. And as a consequence, most of my friends are now familiar with at least some slang terms, even though they've never been to the UK. And slang is a very small part of it. There are other things that get picked up and spread around when people of different cultures mix. Well, the same thing was probably happening back in the days of Ida as well. And importantly, there might have been a social advantage to blending culturally with one group, while emphasizing differences from another. If your family was allied with one village, and you were both in contact with another village, don't you think it would make sense to differentiate yourselves? I mean, it wouldn't be good politics to be wearing the same clothing as your mortal enemies. After all, your ally might think you switch sides. So over time, you might start to see groups that initially were all unique snowflakes, but start to look similar to certain neighboring communities while distinct from others. But again, we've just been mostly speaking about the wealthy. So who cares? That's just a small section of the community. So does that really reflect where the culture is going? Well, this is where it gets really interesting. We found archaeological evidence of knockoffs. That's right, the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of someone wanting to look like they can afford Prada, so they get an imitation brand. Prada, or something like that. These people are starting to sound pretty familiar, aren't they? Anyway, so how did this happen, and why? Well, let's start with why. There's an obvious answer here, right? Wealth is fashionable. The ruling class had the best of everything. And the best is cool. So people wanted to look cool if at all possible, which meant they wanted to look wealthy. We see the same thing in our modern society. We're bombarded on a constant basis with images of how we should look, what we should own, and how we should behave. It's omnipresent and so endemic to our culture that people gather to watch things like the Oscars and discuss, yep, what clothing the Hollywood royalty are wearing. Do you think the Anglo-Saxons were any different? Chances are, they were also paying a lot of attention to what the higher members of society were wearing. And you'd have climbers in that society starting to wear knockoffs. In fact, we know they're wearing knockoffs. And why not? They aspire to climb, and because style is a symbol of status, that's a good way to do it. But the deeper question here 
is how this happened. After all, this is before television and People magazine, so how did they know enough about upper-class fashion to get knockoffs? Well, this goes back to our discussion of feasting. Sure, life is less egalitarian than it was when the settlers first arrived. But there is still some mingling. The homes of the rich were built among the people, rather than in the massive villas far from the rabble, such as in the days of the Romano-British. And we know that the community mingled together at the occasional feast. After all, butchering a large animal could lead to vastly more meat than you could effectively store or utilize. So if you're the leader of a community, it might add to your prestige and majesty to invite everyone in the village to a feast. Everyone would include, well, everyone. The good old days of the airtight roaming cliques that kept the lower orders cordoned off from the wealthy through essentially gated communities and a virtual army of servants, tax collectors, and guards, well, those days were over. The ruling classes were once again living among all those damn poor people. Sure, they'd eventually get back to their gated estates and cliques, and far into the future, you'd end up with a system starting to break down again, and that would lead to dramatic shows like Downton Abbey. But right now, the rich are still mixing with the lower orders. And the result of that was that the climbers of society were able to see what the wealthy were wearing and did their best to emulate it. And there's no reason to think that they stopped at clothing and accessories. They were probably also adopting mannerisms, accents, and even names. Names, you might be saying? Well, we don't have a listing of commoner names from this period, but I think it's entirely possible that there might have been the adoption of fashionable names. Hell, the British did it in the Roman days. Remember Constantine III? You know, the guy who had absolutely no relation to Constantine? And actually, we still see it today. The lower classes tend to adopt names of upper classes over several generations. For example, about 30 years ago, Paris was sufficiently upper class for the Hiltons to use it to name their daughter. But now you could probably find at least one girl named Paris in any strip club in America. So something along those lines might have been occurring among the Anglo-Saxons too, though Aethelfleda might not be the best of stage names. And actually, during these feasts, remember we were talking about feasts. Anyways, at these feasts, the lower orders were probably paying close attention to the behavior of their social superiors. Good behavior might help improve their lot in life, and if their nobles were particularly violent, it might also help them avoid an unwanted head wound. Anyway, the point is that all of these cultural shifts that were started by the wealthy engaging in a combination of fashion, social maneuvering, and politicking was now spreading to all levels of society, and we're starting to see the development of regional traits and cultures. But it's important to note that not everyone developed regional cultures at the same rate. Furthermore, just because a regional culture popped up didn't mean that it would stick around or be dominant. These things were fluid and took generations to get worked out, and sometimes areas that developed a regional culture would split up and change. For example, the cultures of both north and south of the Humber were quite similar for quite a while, but by the time of Bede, that river estuary formed a pretty important cultural divide. So cultures were changing and developing. But, thanks to a general sense of cool, among other things, we're starting to see the development of regional cultures that would eventually turn into regional identities. A fact that the ruling classes would find very interesting ways to exploit. Okay, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just search for at britishpodcast. And, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click get involved, and click forums. All right, thanks for listening. 